Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hello, I'm Helen. And I'm Stephen. And this is the New Statesman podcast. So politics first, and this has been a big week for one B. Johnson, Esquire. I uh, I took a jog on Sunday. Yeah, I'm just going to mention that so that everyone's impressed with me having a jog. Past, uh, past his house where there were loads of paps waiting outside. Um, I think that is testament to the fact that he certainly strung out his decision on the EU for as long as humanly possible. I think too long. Do you agree with me on this? I think actually there was so much showing of ankle that actually the... the I'm, I was bored. I was almost bored of him by the time he actually came out and said it made his decision. So I'm torn. On the one hand, he he, he kept it up too long. Uh, I think it did irritate a lot of people, uh, not least uh, Downing Street. On the other hand, it meant he got the whole 48 hours to himself. He got his whole little role out, and crucially, he didn't have the photo opportunity of doom from the six other. <laughs> This is um, okay. Let's do this. We can remember. We can remember these people's names: Pretty Patel, Chris Grayling, Ian Duncan Smith, Teresa Villiers. Yes, Teresa Villiers, and two other. Michael Gove. Did I already say Michael, Michael Gove. Gove? Can I say him again? And John Whittingdale. John Whittingdale, the ace in the hole that is John Whittingdale. Um, so they came out of the cabinet meeting at the back oh, door. Oh, Pretty Patel. Pretty Patel. I said Pretty Patel. She oh, was okay. out my first one. Okay. Yeah, I was impressed with myself on that. Um, and they came out of the cabinet meeting and held up what looked like one of those big charity checks. Actually, it looked like they'd all sat in a bath of baked beans for some time and they you know raised five thousand pounds for children in need uh, at, at, a, at a launch which as you i think was it you that pointed out on twitter that they had not done the classic ethnic and gender mix that one would hope for in the supporters surrounding them it was an astonishingly ill thought through photo because obviously you know, it's the benetton principle um a long time ago, when i was a, a toddler i was much much more photogenic than i am now and um, oh my god, were you a Benetton model? I, I was. I was offered a, the chance of Benetton model. My mum turned it down because she thought that it would, you know, haunt me in life. But the reason why I was, uh, I was, I, I was asked to do this is that I was nearly a hand model yeah, once. Is even though the number of people who are uh, mixed race or women, etc., yeah, you know, like yeah, they might not actually. People want to buy from. Mm. It's why, you know, if you look at um, a Marks and Spencer catalogue, a Primark catalogue, they all have a diverse range of models. So you get your Benetton yeah. principle. And they had completely failed. The weird thing is you could tell that they knew that they had a problem because they'd bothered to try and get some from some female children who can't have been more than eight in the photo. But they had Chris Grayling clearly speaking, so it looked as if someone had just whacked him very hard on the bottom or something. <laughs> And, um, but there was also the fact that Ian Duncan Smith and Chris Grayling looked like a set of Russian dolls yeah. and there would be another even smaller bold man somewhere it, just around the corner. It, it was just 
that was I, it's one of those things from a professional perspective the vote leave photo really irritated me because why would you put your shortest person Priti Patel Phil. on the edge of the photo it's like that that is literally something which every school photographer tells you not to do <laughs> they should have had her sitting at, kneeling at the front yeah. is what they should have had really with her hands crossed on her lap yeah I, that, so that, that, that I, I thought that was a big problem I also thought that actually if I was the other six cabinet ministers I would have been extra annoyed with Boris because it was a bit like this is a, this is a, some high culture references here. When they had um, the Spice Girls reunion tour, they all agreed the remaining Spice Girls that they would turn up to this photo call wearing black. So they did. So you know, there's Victoria in a nice sort of black sequin bustier and jacket. You know, Mel B's in sort of leather trousers. Jerry Halliwell turned up wearing a white tiered floral frock. What a lad. <laughs> so inevitably she ended up standing in the middle of all the photos she ended up being the one that you looked at first in all the photos and I felt from that moment particularly if it had you know had you been Victoria Beckham you would have been like look which one of us has got a really successful clothing business and has married David Beckham here love um, but that was the sort of same principle. I feel that you would feel that Boris is, it, it, you know the fact that he decides he is not going to lump you know he's, he's it just feels He's not a team player, right? And I think that, yeah, you want a leader who is unafraid to take their own decisions and stuff like that, but you it was too nakedly out for himself. I think the thing is, I don't think it matters that he was too nakedly out for himself. So Boris has this problem that his USP to the Conservative Party used to be, I can win elections. Obviously, then Cameron won an election, so his USP became less unique. And then shortly after that, Labour elected Jeremy Corbyn, who... No conservative MP believes they won't, you know, mm. want, you know that they they just don't think there is any set of circumstances in which they could pick someone. I mean, there are conservative MPs who they believe would lose, but they don't believe that they could get enough votes from MPs to yeah. go before members in the first place. Which means, what's his USP? Well, now his USP is I campaigned for leave. He's probably successfully done enough to stop Pretty Patel getting a big enough profile out of the referendum to be a serious challenger to him. He's not going to get Michael Gove's vote anyway, because Michael Gove is fully bought into the Osborne Cameron project. Mm. Um, but who are his, who are his, you know, who are his henchmen? This is what I think is that he's ended up doing this interesting thing. And actually, analogous very much to Jeremy Corbyn in this sense. Really great base in the country, great profile, you know, lots of people, lots of activists really fired up. But, you know, who is going to be his, who would be Boris's chancellor? You know, who is Boris's foreign secretary? Who is, who is, in the way that, you know, Gove is the kind of, sometimes you think of Gove and Osborne being the kind of brains, like, you know, providing the kind of intellectual driving force behind that Cameron project. Who is providing the intellectual driving force behind the Boris project? Well, Boris is providing the intellectual... But that's a bit sort of sing the theme tune and play the theme tune. Like, he can't do everything for himself all the time, forever. I, I mean, if, as I expect, Boris ends up in number 10, I imagine that the complaints people have about the staff budget going over the roof under Cameron Osborne will look minuscule in comparison because he'll do what he did in City Hall, which is hire people 17 to, deputy yeah. mayors to do all the things he can't be bothered to do. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's probably something. Maybe we should kind of come back to this in, in a future episode about actually looking at Boris's political record because I think he he's done a very clever thing, which is he's sort of invented himself as a national figure, totally unmoored from his achievements or otherwise as a politician. We had yeah. a brilliant piece by um, Dave Hill, who's the Guardian's London blogger, wrote a very long read for us about, you know, just analysing the legacy, the fact that he often didn't turn up to question and answer sessions in City Hall, you know, the fact that the 
the garden bridges needs 60 million of public funding you know when it was all supposed to be funded privately the fact that all of three people in a kind of cow used the emirates airline mm. and all the things that you associate with him the bikes and the olympics were actually ken's projects yeah. to start with that he inherited at the you know at the right time um and i think that's again I imagine that somewhere george osborne is kind of you know, screaming into a padded room about the fact that he does seems to... The normal political laws don't seem to apply to him. That is the remarkable thing about Boris. And he... I mean, this is a man who's compared gay marriage to three men and a dog and has written of, of Africans Watermelon as smiles. Watermelon yes, smiles. And he managed to get elected in the most diverse, most... He said know, that Liverpool... Sexually disparate was city. Liverpool's and, hung up on feeling sorry for itself. Yeah, hooked on its own grief. Yeah, he has, he has yeah, over the time. I mean, as somebody who we know has got at least one child fathered outside marriage. Um, another mistress, you know, had an abortion while she was with him. And a story that he initially dismissed as an inverted pyramid of piffle. Yeah. It turned out to be very much a, a, a solid yeah. pyramid, a pyramid yeah. made of, of fact. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I, I, but then I just, I wonder if this is, this falls to my, you know, I have a, Stephen, you, you know this more than anyone, that I have a saying that a certain, that it's a kind of idea about dog bites man is just, stops being a story so you know ex-columnist is a racist or has said something racist after a while you've just said it too many times or like donald trump you know donald trump has said something incredibly offensive about minorities actually has no currency whatsoever he's pushed through it like once certain something gets dulled by repetition it is no longer heard as a criticism and i wonder if that's the stage you got to with boris none of that stuff none of that stuff will touch him none of that stuff will hurt him at all yeah, I mean, I think it comes back to what people's first impressions of a politician is. And I think actually, yeah, the other, the interesting thing is he, he is kind of harnessed to sort of political Clarksonism, which is kind of, you know, like, you know. That's what I say what I think, jokes, people aren't going to like it. Yeah. You know, I'm sticking two fingers up at the elite. In his case, I think that's even more impressive because it's twinned with him wanging on about Greek and 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 how important the classics are, and sort of saying that he's more intelligent than Cameron and all that kind of stuff. So it's quite impressive to both be the voice of sort of slightly chippy, kind of white van man, and be the guy who's going on about how he, you know, he loves Herodotus. Yeah. The interesting question is whether or not, because I mean, so there's a a story I tell in this week's magazine about an event he did with Osborne in the run up to the election, in which he arrived, claimed not to have a speech. Thea Rogers, uh, Osborne's aide, starts to freak out because she is... She's, well, she's in charge of Macy, making sure it looks professional, yeah, she, right? Yes, yeah, and obviously that's kind of... And, um, and he was like, oh, yeah. And um, and then, of course, he had a speech. And it, he'd, he'd written a speech already. He was just enjoying discomforting Thea. And whenever, particularly because Osborne is not exactly Mr. Clubbable, whenever they were out on the campaign trail, Boris liked to create opportunities where they would have to talk to normal humans, normal humans because he enjoys the discomforting of of Osborne, which some of his admirers find that impressive, the way that there is an iron fist holding the custard pie. But you wonder for him whether or not, as that nasty edge comes out, people will kind of go, oh, I don't... I don't like you. Um, maddeningly, there is no polling of, over what happened to Jeremy Clarkson's public image immediately after he punched that producer. But my hunch is, even though it may have recovered now because people miss Top Gear or whatever, then people are like, whoa, I know he can be a bit off colour, but I didn't think Jeremy Clarkson was a thug. And I wonder if there's a danger to Boris that as he has to get better at the nasty bits of politics, the mask comes off a bit and his 
sort of appeal starts to fade. Well, there is always that question about people who run on an anti-politics, anti-establishment ticket is, you know, what happens when they actually become the establishment themselves. It's very easy to be popular as a politician. I remember a friend who worked on Question Time for a bit saying that all you have to do as a, 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 you know, as a journalist who goes on is you have to just bang the table and go, why won't the politicians listen to us? And everyone goes... And that's the that's the problem is that you can get a very easy applause line about say you know and, and a great um, Harry Enfield sketch where people just go the bankers the bonuses the bonuses the bankers, and and that's and that's easy. However, tell me that there is a way to be in charge of the DWP or to be in charge of the immigration service, and even if you're the kindest, most liberal, warm-hearted person in the world, that you don't make at least half a dozen decisions every month that people could take issue with it's just absolutely impossible but i just feel like people don't acknowledge that getting things done in politics is really hard and actually it's sometimes it's it's more impressive that people get anything done at all i mean you know obama is by any means an incredibly skillful politician and he has been just blocked on so many things or you know angela merkel incredibly successful politician and and she can't get things that she wants done. you know she finds she has to deal with party management yeah, I mean, so I mean, so obviously, Obama is in many ways the most has the most successful domestic legacy of a president since LBJ. But he all he did it in his first two years, and since then he's had a wholly defend defensive yeah. presidency against the Republican Congress. Um, but it's it, amazing how yeah. much the I mean, I don't agree with it, but it's amazing how much the coalition got done. But then again, it had a majority of effectively sixty. You yeah. know, Cameron's got a majority of twelve now. Things are much harder. I don't feel like there is a lot that is kind of coming up, and I also just don't know what. This is a criticism that's often made of Cameron. What does what did Cameron want to be prime minister for? You know, there was that famous line about his ambition ended on the day that he walks through number ten. I kind of feel like that about Boris. What's what is Borisism? You know, what does what is Boris's vision of, of of politics? What does he want to do? What things does he want to reform? For all that I take issue with Michael Gove, apart from last week where I was very nice about him, you know, that is if somebody's got into politics to do a specific thing to affect you know specific policies and changes. I feel like again, Boris wants to be prime minister. He doesn't necessarily want to govern Britain or change Britain. He wants to be in charge. That's fundamentally it. Oh, that's depressing. Well, that's good. We've also, this has been nice. This has been the sort of part two of our kind of half-term marks, really, and that we've kind of given him, I think he gets a, a D? Uh, are we, can we give two marks? We give him an F for being a mayor, but I'm going to give him an A- minus for, in terms of his own his own objectives and his political needs, I think, you know, I think he's well-placed to become the next Conservative leader and Prime Minister, which is a saddening thought. Okay, well, then we'll leave it there. Hi, I'm Caroline. And I'm Anna. And we host the Pop Culture Podcast from the New Statesman. Seriously. If you secretly care more about comics than Jeremy Corbyn, this is the podcast for you. You can find all our episodes at newstatesman.com forward slash S-R-S-L-Y. And now it's time to go down the line to the lobby with George. Hi, Stephen. Hi, George. So this week has been dominated by Europe, inevitably, after the referendum was called and after Michael Gove and then Boris Johnson uh, came out for Brexit. And we had this remarkable moment of of parliamentary theatre on Monday when David Cameron um, aimed a series of barbs at at Boris Johnson with Johnson sitting behind him on, on the back benches, the most potent of which was, I'm not standing for re-election 
Um, I only have the best interests of, of, of the country at heart. Uh, the implication being that, of course, Johnson has his eye very much on becoming conservative leader and believes that uh, opposing EU membership, the stance that around 70% of Tory members will take, is, uh, is the best way to achieve that. Of course, this should normally be a golden moment for Labour. Uh, voters don't like divided parties. This Tory-EU split has long been relished by, um, by Labour, but it's very hard for them to exploit it because... Uh, if anything, they're even more divided than um, than the Tories. Most Labour MPs uh, don't want Jeremy Corbyn to be leader at the next general election. More than half of them oppose him on Trident renewal. That split's come up again um, with Jeremy Corbyn planning to speak at a CND rally on Saturday. And um, of course, Corbyn is not a great enthusiast for the EU. Before he became leader, he even questioned um, whether he'd support membership in the referendum. And so it's very hard for him to have uh, impact in this area. Right. Um, speaking of Corbyn, tell us about the, the war of Jeremy Corbyn's mother. Yes. Yeah, so slightly surreal Prime Minister's questions on Wednesday when Corbyn referred to David Cameron as the chair of the anti-austerity Oxfordshire group in reference to a letter that Cameron wrote to his local council complaining about, about cuts rather hypocritically a lot, many said. Um, at which point, I think it was Angelo Eagle heckled, um, what would your mother say? Um, Cameron's mother recently signed an anti-cuts petition. Uh, Cameron seized the opportunity provided and said, you know, my mother would have said to uh, Jeremy Corbyn, uh, put, on a, put on a proper suit, do your tie up and sing the national anthem. And um, it was quite a moment. And a lot of Labour MPs looked incredibly grim faced because although some would see it as reflective of Cameron's, what they call Cameron's flashman tendencies as, as bullying. I was instantly reminded of Labour MPs who told me of similar remarks from their constituents. And um, Corbyn actually showed some rare spontaneity by replying, um, you know, my late mother would have said stand up for the principle of a, of a free health service and, and so on. Um, but the, the, the blow had been landed and, and Corbyn never really, never really recovered from that point. Yeah. Well, of course, the the kind of the meaty and exciting thing is this uh, war within the Conservative Party over Europe. Uh, has uh, the Prime Minister's attack on Boris had um, ructions among Tory MPs? There were some at the 1922 committee meeting, uh, which was almost immediately after. It was, in fact, it was straight after um, Cameron finished in, in the Commons, where he was told by Steve Baker, who's leading the anti-EU Conservative group, you know, be nicer to Boris. And all sides are, I think, keen to avoid a repeat of the, the Euro wars of the 1990s, of it becoming as vicious and as personalised as it did then. Um, then there are others who are on Cameron's side, but think he did overreach in the Commons, that it's better for him. Actually, Andy Coulson, his former director of communications, has an interesting piece in the, in the Telegraph arguing that it's fine to go for Boris, but let other people do the dirty work. You know, let that Theresa May um, ridicule Boris and, and, and deride him and pose as a more credible and serious figure that the prime minister shouldn't dirty his hands with um, playing politics with, with one of his opponents. Um, and... If anything, it, it's Theresa May and George Osborne who are Boris's real rivals because although he's fighting the referendum against Cameron, Cameron is not standing for for the leadership again, and so uh, that in some ways makes a more makes a more natural contest. 
But there are also tensions with, with Michael Gove. So when Michael Gove came out for Brexit, a lot of briefings suggested that although he would oppose the EU membership, he wouldn't play a particularly prominent role in, in the campaign, um, that he would take a bit of a, a, a back seat, partly in deference to his friends, David Cameron and, and George Osborne. But actually he made a very notable intervention a few days later saying that the renegotiation that agreed by Cameron um, has no legal basis, um, that it's, it's not fixed in law and led to an instant rebuttal by, by number 10. But perhaps more significant than the exchange itself was that it was a notable intervention by Gove and suggests that there could be more to follow. And we've even had uh, a report in, in, in the Telegraph today that number 10 is considering sacking Gove, um, a claim that they've, they've quickly denied, but it shows how high tension, tensions are running. And given how long this, this split has been coming, it, it is, and given how deep the the feelings run on Europe in the Conservative Party, there is potential for lots of um, of difficult moments. Um, but I think what will keep the Tories together is Labour's weakness in, in many ways. Um, it's often when the opposition is flourishing that parties become most divided, partly because some start to think, oh, defeat's inevitable, so we may as well um, say what we think and, and, and not worry about about the election, and because tensions then develop over how to beat them. Um, most Tory MPs, most Labour MPs, in fact, regard Jeremy Corbyn as, as unelectable and think that they've got a good chance of, of being in government until at least 2030. And so it shouldn't be, it shouldn't be too hard to, um, to put the Conservative Party back together again after the referendum and to immediately focus on what they hope will be a landslide victory in 2020. Right. Thank you very much. Talk to you again next One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. joined by our tech writer Barbara Speed to talk about anti-social networks. So um, Barbara, could we, we make you write a lot about um, online social networks because they are a genuinely new phenomenon and also because they provide an, an insight into some very old types of behaviour taking a new form. Do you want to tell us about your investigation into um, child abuse networks, paedophile images on Facebook first? Yeah, so, um, so we were contacted by some people who claimed that they'd been sitting on Facebook and had basically come across profiles that were full of really horrible child abuse imagery and even maybe images posted by abusers themselves. So this is obviously quite a serious thing if criminals are using Facebook to operate their criminal networks. Um, And this has been, I mean, this has kind of cropped up in the news actually over the years at both Twitter and Facebook because they... They are sites with good intentions, but equally they can't check every piece of content that goes on there. And obviously people who are pedophiles know this. Um, and so they can use things like secret groups or secret profiles or on Twitter, a secret Twitter feed. Um, and you just have to know a few like code words, essentially, and you could find really horrendous stuff um, on Facebook. And I think it just puts everyone in an incredibly difficult position because the promise of the internet and of social media is that we can all exchange vast amounts of information all the time, actually without people checking up on us and, you know, making sure that they are happy with what we're seeing. But actually the flip side of that is that criminals get that as well. 
One of the things I thought was really interesting is, is exactly that point you make about the network effect. I mean, when I was doing, I was reading Whitney Phillips's work about trolls and 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 this particular phenomenon from a couple of years ago called um, RAP trolling, which would be when people would go and look for the pages of young people who had died in like tragic accidents. So maybe they'd committed suicide, they'd been run over by whatever a train, and they would go and post the most kind of nasty unthinking you know kind of deliberately stuff so one of the cases that i wrote about um somebody had hacked into the profile of the of the dead kid and used it to send a message to the mother saying like you know it's it's hot down here in hell mummy which mm-hmm. is just one of the most psychopathic things that i've ever come across but they did they formed exactly that they formed networks they would use certain aliases or pseudonyms that were that sort of, sort of evolved so they could find again and one of the reasons that facebook managed to eventually to shut most of them down is because they 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 weren't anonymous. They were pseudonymous, and they they kept trying to show off to their group of friends. So you could actually map the connections between yeah. them. And they really enjoy the idea that they're beating Facebook and that they're like the powerful force on these networks. And interestingly, actually, one of the people who found who I spoke to who found these um, abuse images online came to it through RIP trolling because there was some overlap between the two groups. But he said that what was interesting was that the trolls are one thing. And they enjoy trolling, and actually, you're right, they're catchable because they're actually egomaniacs and they want to show off about what they're doing. But the paedophiles are much more disturbing because they don't want to be found, obviously, and they what they're doing is, without argument, illegal. The other thing I thought was really that comes out in stories of this is really sort of disturbing is the, the extent to which outsourcing has kind of come in in terms of how we police child abuse images. So, there's an organization called CEOPS, the Child and Expert. Child Exploitation Online Protection Service. I think I get the acronym wrong. Mm-hmm. But that is essentially now we have a... There's a sort of kind of volunteer police force in a way that they're expected to be the ones who are the first point of contact for people who see, you know, find child abuse images. They go and they keep a database to sort of kind of put things into image searches. I find that... I mean, that is that is tough work. Having mm-hmm. interviewed people before Christmas who did this kind of stuff, you know, it takes a, a big toll on people. Yeah. And it's, and it's hard. And I, I worry about... I mean, there's, there was a great piece by Adrian Chen about comment moderators. You know, mm-hmm. the, the, now we've essentially created a new kind of form of underclass labor that's often exploited to, you know, exported to the Philippines and places like that, where the job is to go through and delete the horrible porn, the horrible gore, the horrible people who shotgun themselves in the face from comment threads. And that's now people's full-time jobs. And that's something that's easy to forget, because again, with all this stuff, when I was looking into it, there was a lot of anger directed at Facebook and at, at social networks. And I think some of that is justified by the situation that social networks have created. But then you think, well, can social networks employ thousands of people just to look through images? And I mean, again, the BBC did an investigation which found that certain paedophiles were collecting non-sexual images of children, which were, for whatever reason, publicly available and collecting them in secret groups and treating them as pornography. And then um, there was, again, a quite a lot of anger that Facebook didn't delete these images even when they were reported. But actually, you can understand that because if you're someone flicking through reported images, those images aren't by their nature offensive. And expecting someone to sift through the context of every single social media post and and spend that amount of time looking seems kind of extreme. I think that's a big, that's a big challenge, yeah. though, isn't it, with, with internet lawmaking is because essentially you're having to try and write laws around behaviours mm-hmm, and around exactly. the interpretation of things. And policing than... thought as well. So, I mean, yeah. the, prob- the real problem with... The real reason people are angry is that you can't stop someone looking at an apparently innocent photo of a child and them thinking those things. So it's kind of... It goes far beyond Facebook, really. I mean, like, as with all technology, I guess, it just is a tool that's been used to, by people to do the things they wanted to do anyway. Stephen, what's the worst thing you've ever seen on the internet? 
to be honest, I think Barbara's story in a, in a good way <laughs> was probably the worst thing I've seen on the internet. Harsh burn. Um, I guess, I, I, it's weird, I realise I never actually like go into like a, the kind of, the closest I get to like a, although actually the thing I always find weird is I, I try and do a lot of access visits where I do that thing where I like go to a school in a low polar eye area or like back to one of the schools around where I'm from they're like you know like I'll apply to university like this is how UCAS works etc etc and you know if you ever like have any questions about like journalism or whatever like here's my here's my Twitter because obviously Twitter's public whereas my Facebook is private my Instagram is notionally public it's just photos of your wife just it's also photos of buildings and and yeah and coffee and and your wife (laughs) yeah but you know but my point is this my instagram is not a great place to get tips about how to break into journalism or how to do a university application process but occasionally um these students will follow me on instagram and they will be posting pictures of themselves or their partners there'll be 30 or 40 minutes just be like so i have a couple of things of advice for you about net security mm-hmm. that is always quite um unnerving because i feel this can make me sound like a, a fuddy-duddy but i feel our generation did quite well in terms of the level of internet access we had than the kind of stop going on the internet i need to use the phone generation actually did all right because it meant that you had like the fun of going on msn and stuff, but if you are, I I was never bullied on the internet. But I know people who were, but they um they could just turn it off, and it wasn't this continual thing that they yeah. were sort of haunted by. I think that the other thing is that we just don't like thinking about how horrible aspects of the internet are. I mean, there's the government's big. I think it's We Protect, a new kind of net security initiative, and all of the stuff around it. They're talking about the dark web and Tor and all and the deep web, and actually like. Facebook, you don't need to go any further than Facebook to find the kind of stuff that they're talking about. And I think we have this, this instinct where we want to think that we are safe online. And actually there was, there was, um, in Lena Dunham's newsletter this week, there was a piece by a woman who was saying that her mum had written about her and her books and she was quite annoyed by it. It was Erica Young's daughter. Yeah, yeah. Erica Young's daughter. And, um, and then she said, she looked at her on Instagram and she was like, Oh God, I'm posting pictures of my like four and five year old children all the time. I'm logging their entire life online. And I haven't checked with them. And actually, I'm quite a, no- a notable person, and quite a lot of people can see this stuff. And you just—it's like trolling until it happens to you. The fact that all that stuff is just online is kind of—I think it's really difficult to it. explain to people as well because you know, if you don't go looking for this stuff, actually, it's not. So I'm thinking about mm-hmm. when I was writing a, can, a, yeah, a bit about a Reddit, and they had a whole network called the Chimpire, which was their incredibly racist sites where they're just white supremacists just hung out. And they had, um, you know, r slash raping women, r slash beating women, upskirts, all this sort of stuff, you know, dead jailbait. And, but it was all there, like uh, just, you know, literally two clicks away from mm-hmm. your homepage. But I don't think most people would ever have any... And this is the same thing when you tried to explain to people why Twitter trolling was too bad. To people who didn't use Twitter, they would just be like, well, turn it off. Why wouldn't you just get off Twitter? Which was, you know, I I know is a perfectly reasonable response to it. But it's quite hard to explain that if you build a network where all your friends are, you know, like if all your friends are on Reddit, if all your friends are on Facebook, if all your friends are on Instagram, whatever, there is a big social cost to, to coming off them. Yeah, and it's this odd thing which we all know that we have these self-perpetuating bubbles online and that we see only... I mean, the whole concept of Google really is that you see only ever what you want to see. And that's what they're constantly trying to serve you is things closer and closer to what you're asking for so you don't accidentally find the horrible bits of Reddit mm-hmm. when you're looking for something else. But then then those bubbles are also completely penetrable, penetrable mm-hmm. and we don't anticipate that. And then suddenly all these people have come in from some other bubble and they're like yelling at you and... 
it kind of really takes you aback. But I wonder if that will become such a... I mean, I think Stephen's point is interesting about whether or not that will be... Or, you know, will it be less of a problem for 16-year-olds today because their parents are going to have a much greater working understanding of the internet? It moves too fast, doesn't it? Yeah, I think one of the things... Yeah, so I don't really understand... Snapchat? Is that what the, what the, the young people are doing? What is the Snapchat? Um, I also think that... So something which hadn't occurred to me, and this is probably... Actually, I think it might have been you, Barbara, who pointed this out. Like, when people meet people offline, most adults meet people on, on from the internet all the time now. So actually, that stranger danger of you don't know if someone's a dog on the internet um, that was kind of drilled into my mind and the mind of all of my peers when we were like hanging out on forums or whatever or on MSN and we were introduced to a friend of a friend that we were like, well, you don't know who this person actually is, um, doesn't exist anymore in the same way because people's parents themselves, you know, that people's parents may themselves have met on the internet. Yeah, although I think that's difficult because mm. I think when you look about identity online, I just don't think that people... You don't get a set, the same conception of somebody from their online identity ever that you do about them in, in real life. And I think it's quite easy to kind of catfish and hoax people because you yeah. only need such a minimal level of... I mean, the, in terms of these Facebook paedophiles, the amount of information they must have to put onto their profiles to get to a legitimate-looking profile is... Yeah, it's tiny. It's quite And low. what's key as well is that the, the, the few who've been arrested and charged for their crimes on Facebook will have been through, like, 20 profiles with, like, slight name changes or completely made-up names or... And, I mean, the other slight difficulty here is that Facebook actually cracks down on people who are, say, trans or a performer or have a name that doesn't sound real to them. But then, actually, there isn't really any kind of confirmation of... I mean, the campaign has also suggested that maybe real names being cracked down on is something that would help with online crime and that maybe certain social networks, when they reach a level like Facebook and Twitter have something like being verified but for a much wider audience might help the trouble is it's always about i find so much of this discourse is about competing interests and competing rights for most people a real name policy on facebook works much better for a significant minority it works much worse and it's about how you ever and i and i get this is a point i keep making about internet activism is internet activism is so focused on perfection that it kind of just finds it very mm-hmm. difficult to deal with the idea that actually you make a 95-5 decision, you know, you never make a 100-0 mm-hmm. decision that is right for everybody, that's the best thing for everybody. And the problem is that the people who it would be a problem for tend to be vulnerable and not have the skills that would help them overcome it. The people who are criminals tend to have the skills that would help them get around it anyway. So it's a kind of lose-lose situation. So just to leave listeners with a useful piece of information, if they see something that they think might be illegal, like they see an image that they think might be legal what do you actually like where do you take that because presumably you can't phone up your local police station and go uh i've seen a gross image on or a yeah, potentially so legal image on facebook it depends where you are so twitter actually has a dedicated email address for child abuse images which if you go on their reporting site is kind of available facebook is currently looking at its approach to this because in the past it very much it seems to me that it was basically someone seeing a whole screen of photos and then filtering which did or didn't breach guidelines but now they have like a direct point of contact with police themselves so hopefully if you report something as child abuse to facebook and they recognize it as such they will pass that directly on to the ceop um or you yourself can send stuff directly to the ceop um which is the child exploitation and 
Online protection, I think, but yeah. I'm, I'm not... Exploitation and online but... protection service. It's actually part of the um, National Crime Agency. And actually, as part of this investigation, because I was looking at people who'd sent them tip-offs and I was kind of asking how they view people who send these, you know, send random images. And you won't be suspected of anything yourself. They do welcome information from normal people. Although so. I'm sure I read somewhere that they have a... They, that somebody runs their training scheme says they ask for people to kind of come and train to do this work and they do find a significant... You know, every year there is at least one person who applies to do this work that they reject because they think they have an unwholesome reason for their work. Yeah, I mean, I think if you were sending a lot of stuff... <laughs> but, images. But, um, but that's But they good. do deal with it directly and they actually... I mean, uh, the problem is that criminals are always further ahead than the criminal agencies trying to deal with them, but I think that those agencies are catching up now with pinning down who these people are and actually not just banning them from Facebook because that is a pointless thing to do. And also destroys the evidence. Criminals. I mean, that's exactly. The, yeah. That's the point. Um, so, well, that is a rare optimistic note to end a discussion <laughs> on the New Statesman podcast. Uh, thanks for joining us, Barbara. This is a Manhattan-bound B Express train. The next stop is Grand Street. Mind the gap. Hey, I'm John. And I'm Barbara, and we present Skylines, the new podcast from Citymetric, the new statesman's urbanism site. Every two weeks you can hear us talk about cities, geography and the human impact on the environment, and test our contention that maps make a great topic for radio. You can find us on iTunes or Acast. Check it out. And welcome to the part of the podcast we call You Asked Us. Um, this week, people have been asking me mostly about Donald Trump. I think we've now entered the point in the American election cycle where people are going, oh, we know he really is going to be the nominee. We thought at some point that like, the normals would take back over or whatever passes for the normals in the uh, GOP. Um, but how do you explain the rise and continued success of Trump, Stephen? Um, so, I mean, there's, there is a global phenomenon of non-graduates being left behind uh, by the economy. Uh, another global phenomenon of young graduates who cannot access the things that many of them regard as their their right, you know, a house, a stable job, etc., etc. Um, the kind of the graduate with no future. Uh, and obviously that graduate is partially what charged the Corbyn phenomenon, or that's actually overstated in Britain. It is overwhelmingly what is behind Sandersism and uh you know, and at the heart of many of the street movements in Europe. And then with UKIP you have or Beppe Grillo in uh in, in Italy, you have people who have been left behind the economy who who might have been able to become apprentices and get on a a, a good job, but are now stuck in low wage, insecure uh, work who are turning to the populist right uh, and that is kind of Trumpism coupled to that in the unique political ecosystem of the US you have immense capital is required to mount a successful bid for the presidency you have the thinning out of political talent and you have a Republican elite which is effectively failed to produce a candidate strong enough to knock out all of the non-Trump rivals. If it was Rubio and Trump alone, then Rubio would probably beat him. But Rubio can't wipe out Ted Cruz. And while Cruz is there, he's stuck with Trump. That's my very wonkish The thing, I, Yeah, I think the other thing that is, really has to come out of this is that 
all the th- all the things that we again it kind of comes back to what we were talking about earlier all the things that we kind of regard as political laws if you break them consistently enough then they no they no longer seem seem to apply to you so you know trump can say the most incredibly offensive things i think the there are a litany as long as your arm, but the one that stands out to me is when he did an impression of a disabled reporter, and it was just like something that if a if a three year old did it, you tell them off. Like it was yeah. just I can't I can't describe it. But he's just kind of gone through that the other side. And actually, I think one of the interesting things about him is that we get very worried about um, you know the populist right with a very anti immigration message in particular. The weird thing about Trumpism that it is it's quite incoherent, like. It just doesn't actually add up when you just try and, you know, even at a sentence level when you hear his speeches, they, they don't really follow along from each other. And I think that therefore he's got a kind of sense of people project onto him what they want to see. I mean, I wouldn't deny that he is anti-immigration. I mean, the, probably the defining moment of his campaign was saying, you know, until we sort this whole thing out, I wouldn't let any Muslims into the country. Um, but 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 more than that, he doesn't have a again. It's it's fantasy politics. He doesn't have a kind of a, a hard message to sell to people. He sells them incredibly easy answers. The thing I find really interesting is a lot of Corbyn supporters will say to me how terrible it is that the media is constantly sledging Jeremy Corbyn. This is why you're not you know you're not giving him a fair chance. His message isn't getting out. The media has consistently slated Donald Trump. There is no pro-Trump media outlet. You even get big things like, I think it was the National Review, this very heavyweight American establishment right-wing, you know, by, in British terms, phenomenally right-wing um, grandees coming out and saying, like, why we must not get Trump. Like, this is not a, a political movement per se. It's not about what, you know, him championing far-right policies, although he does, is it? It's much more... Well, the Republican establishment is terrified of Trump because they think not only will he lose to Hillary Clinton, who now, yeah, what well, effectively Nevada confirmed what we saw in New Hampshire and Iowa, which is that Sanders is catnip to a very specific strain of the Democratic electorate, but he does not have a broad enough uh, appeal to win the nomination. So they fear not only that he will be defeated by Hillary Clinton, but that he will drag down. There are six very losable Senate races for the Republicans. They've gerrymandered Congress to the extent that they will, yeah, they will not lose their majority in the House of Representatives. And so they see him as a huge, huge threat. And they have, through the the media, attempted to bring him down, and it hasn't worked. I mean, one of the interesting things about the European referendum is, of course, most of the, the right-wing press has sledged Cameron's deal. Even pro-European outlets like the NS or the FT or the Guardian have been fairly anti it because it's a fairly cruddy deal. But people still trust Cameron and Remain is still ahead in all of the polls. I think this speaks to something, that, and I know Owen has written about this a couple of times for us, is just trying to blame poor performance on the media is not only disrespectful to voters treating them like sheep, but it just is not supported by the evidence. Yeah, the media does a huge amount to shape the climate, shape the sort of assumptions and the framing of political debates, but fundamentally you can't sell people something that they don't want just by advertising it enough. And I think that's the... That's the lesson of, of, of Trump. Polly Billington, who was uh, Sadiq's media advisor during the selection campaign, has a lovely line. There's no such thing as bad press. In the same way, there's no such thing as bad weather. You like you simply you simply wear a cloak. You simply have to wear. I think wear a cloak. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know what happened there. From sorry. the 18th century. No, I know what you mean, but you you have an umbrella. Yeah, you, you, or you build a fire or whatever. It's about your 
reaction to circumstances. So that's that's it. That's the only explanation I can offer from Trump. Apart from the great line from Peep Show, people buy Coldplay records and they vote for the Nazis. You can't trust people. Yeah. Oh, that chilling thought. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast presented by me, Helen Lewis, with Stephen Bush. Our producer is India Bork and our music is Devil with a Devil by the Underscore Orchestra, licensed under Creative Commons. You can find us on iTunes or at newstatesman.com forward slash podcast. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's stamps.com, code PROGRAM.